What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Hardcore Troubadour. My name is Brian Wallace. My name is Tyler Short, and uh, usually I'm the one who goes to a bunch of shows, but uh, Brian's been going to shows lately, so uh, Brian's having more fun than me right now. Is that true? Even though I was on vacation last week. Yeah. Well, isn't that... So when you have like a super busy work week, you have like five shows in a row. Yeah. And then on vacation, nothing Nothing to do. Nothing to do. Yeah. that, That figures. I did chores. Yeah. Yeah. So like when it would have been chill to like stay out late and have time to sleep, can't do it. I did all the sleep though. That is good. You needed. <laughs> I, did, I did sleep hard. You needed to do some major catching up on sleep, man. Right on. Yeah. Um, this past weekend in Philadelphia was the uh, some blacklisted shows uh, along with Unbroken. I did not get to go to the Friday night show, although I heard it was killer. But I went to the Saturday show, um, which were was, they were they both at the church? They were both at the church. So Friday cool. night and a Saturday matinee, which this old man appreciates the matinee and not like an early matinee. You know, it was like started at three over by like eight thirty. But that was like, yeah, you perfect. texted me at like three thirty and was like, watch a magnitude right now. It's like, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll say that, I mean, you know what I know in many parts of the country or the world where you're listening it's hot as shit all the time. So it, this might not matter to you, but it was like fucking 85 degrees in almost November, which for the Northeast is not. That's normal. very warm. Yeah. And, um, especially when earlier in the week it had been in like the forties and like winter coats and shit out. So, um, the, the church in Philly first Unitarian church, I think is one of the, if not the best all ages DIY venues in the country. Um, and certainly one with the most staying power. Like I was talking to, uh, my buddy Mark from Denver who came out, um, for the shows. And, um, we were just talking about how, you know, in Denver where he's lived here in New York in Memphis, where I'm from, we've had so many great DIY venues, but just due to the nature of how fucking hard it is to keep a place like that running. No more than five years. Yeah. Like the shelf life is not very long. They've come and gone. And I was like, it is truly a testament to Philadelphia hardcore that they've been able to keep that place going as long as they have. And to, you know, the folks that do a lot of the work there, Bob Wilson, Joe, many others that, uh, you know, nobody's surprisingly enough, nobody's right. Nobody's done anything (laughs) so fucking heinous, right. That the, yeah that even at a very like progressive Unitarian church, they were like, no, you're not fucking doing this anymore down there. So um, yeah, I went to the summer I spent in Philadelphia when I was doing work at Temple University 18 years ago, I went to shows at the church and here I am again, still going to shit at the church. So um, the lineup was Scarab, Magnitude, Spiritual Cramp, indecision unbroken blacklisted bangers start to fucking finish spare rocks yeah you know it's one of those things like not just saying it because as a middle-aged dad i don't get out of the house as often as i would like to anymore Mm -hmm. like legit every band fucking killed it and i was thinking like when will be my opportunity to spend a prolonged period of time outside because it was so fucking miserable and sweltering in the basement. Nope. There wasn't one. I watched every yep. band. That's awesome. Um, 
I didn't catch all of Scarab's set. I made it about halfway in, but like they were killer. Great reaction. Philly really showed up for them. Um, Magnitude playing second. It's a testament to how stacked the fucking lineup was. The Magnitude's playing the Magnitude second. The Magnitude was yeah. second, right? Um, they were great. New records, always. so good. Dude, sounded songs, great. Songs go well. So <laughs> songs go well as well. Song go well. They're so good. Song um, go well. You know, and just like, dude, representing, it's just, it, it, and, and, you know, more on magnitude in a second, but like, you know, at these like, I don't want to call it it at these shows that span generations, right? Like mm -hmm. I have always wonder, even though like obviously unbroken indecision and now even blacklisted when you're thinking about, I don't think of them as like an older band, but they're an they older are band. Now. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's always the tendency that it's going to be an old show. And I say that as an old, you know, like I don't want too much of me there. Mm -hmm. I want, <laughs> you know what I mean? I want to make sure that there's youth and energy and stuff like that. And there definitely was like the, there was a, a huge span in age, but it was also cool to see just like the through lines there. You know what I mean? Of, of bands and, you know, like to hear like Rob Moran from unbroken shout out magnitude. And to think about this, like, you know, not to get corny and nostalgic, but this like multi-generational through line of fucking family tree, killer, yeah. yeah, straight edge bands spanning mm -hmm. all these, all these years um, and being together. That was awesome. The other thing, um, I mean, spiritual cramp stood out on the lineup, but they're used to that. They fucking own it. Yeah. Right. So they rocked. It was like, I think it was like, like a much needed change of energy um, that, that I really appreciated indecision fucking great as always hadn't played philly since 1997 um and as tom mentioned that was with adam and his package um if you're unfamiliar with adam a-t-o-m and his package i'm only familiar because of them playing uh crazy fest and yeah. always seeing the name on the crazy fest lineup that's right it was a thing and like it's actually it's not it's think. not for me but it's it was the thing it's honestly man it's not for most people outside of basements in philadelphia but in those basements in philadelphia they drew he drew quite a big crowd mm. um and so you know tom was joking about like uh yeah and then uh you know shout out to philly you really show up for your locals uh everybody left after adam and his package uh so <laughs> so yeah this this show's better <laughs> and uh it was it was killer. They got a great reaction, as always. Uh, a lot of people from New York rolled down, which was awesome to see. Um, and then Unbroken, who somehow, I hadn't realized this, had never played Philadelphia, ever. A lot of West um, Coast bands yeah. never made it some places, man. Right. I guess it. And I, it's just my own like naivete. But yeah, in that time period in the 90s, like, and just thinking about you could, you could make a huge fucking career um not ever you know playing all the way across the country or playing europe or any of that stuff or maybe like bands that would go to europe and other places but still not have been able or to around the states yeah all the u.s you know that's more common than you might think um they sounded great um it was they always bring such like an interesting energy i like it's funny when I, the, the, the singer from Unbroken 
we've only said like a couple of words to each other when they when they played a show. God, it's been so long now. In 2009 in New York, also with Indecision. Um, I got to chat with him very briefly, like nicest dude, you know, but he has like major like youth pastor energy, like <laughs> Frisbee golf coach energy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's who he is. He owns it. But it's just such an amazing contrast between his presence as a front man, the lyrics that yeah. he wrote. And just like, yeah, if I saw this goober with a goatee on the street, I don't know what I'd think of him. And it turns out he's, you know, one of my favorite hardcore vocalists, period, of all time, ever. Um, and I love Blacklisted. It was hard to follow Unbroken, I think, but not in Philly. Um, yeah. I appreciated they they seem to be going for let's maximize this. No bullshit. It was like it was like 16 songs. 36 minutes, boom, like energy did not stop at all. Um, crowd ruled. Um, Old songs. Great mix. Um, you know, I, I don't. Nothing, I, nothing pre uh, beat goes on though. They, there was at least one. Okay. I need to, honestly, I should have like looked back, but I also, fucking ran out of there as soon as it was over to get back to New York. Um, killer though. I mean, to me, I will always love blacklisted. They're one of my favorite bands, but I was, I was there to see them broken. Um, I mean, I, I will always, I will always have a place for blacklisted and in, in my dying brain, yeah. blacklisted lyrics will be some of the last things that I remember. Oh yeah. As it all turns off, I will still, I will still see the lyrics to tourist and finding faith Dude. and uh, those are in there forever. No matter how many concussions I, I suffer, those aren't, those aren't falling out. Um, Put so your yeah. life on a shelf while everyone around you finds happiness and wealth. Unreal. Um, just so good. Truly summed a, up an entire generation. That's right. A poet for certainly that losers, time. but yeah, I mean, <laughs> and now as well but yeah if, if you've if, if you never got a chance to see blacklisted in philly it's uh it's what changed my mind on blacklisted i didn't like it? them first this is hardcore i decided i uh i was wrong <laughs> yeah i feel like i got very lucky that i got to i they played memphis um we we got to open for them that was then open for them in 05 um so yeah, before beat goes on when they were, they were playing a few of the songs off of mm -hmm. it, but they were still mainly touring off our youth is wasted. And, um, like I was hooked from the start. Um, like the whole so thing, sick. the, the, the mystery of why George always wore long sleeves, the barefoot shit, everything like I he was... didn't do the barefoot shit for till, uh, heavier than heaven came out though. Oh, okay. That well, was when the barefoot shit started. That's my. He was an Air Max guy for a while. That's my selective memory, um, but my God, like, what a force of a band! So yeah, it. it oh you know, yeah, I. They toured hard. They toured hard. Yeah, I they mean, were it, the only band touring hard at that time if, too. If if you've hit Memphis multiple times, especially in that time period, you were touring hard. They never um, hit Louisville, but they hit Evansville. But <laughs> dude, shout out Evansville hardcore. I've been to a couple of shows in Evansville and had yeah. a good time. 
I think I saw um, Blacklisted in Evansville three times. <laughs> dude, there was a band from Evansville that we played with. It would have been like mid 2000s. I'm not going to remember. Is it Straight but and Alert? Might have been. They we were the were, best band from Evansville. So. I just we were treated. No very, one's ever talked about them on a podcast, also. Well, so I'm sure everybody's really enjoying this. For we have portion. listeners in Indiana. <laughs> we have listeners in Indiana, so who knows? And also, I'll just say for you know uh, a hardcore band from Memphis that not a whole lot of people had heard of, Evansville treated us very well the couple of times we played there. So yeah, shout out. Always um, a good time. Yeah, man. Um, but yeah, man. So it was a, it was killer. Um, I'm and just a good reminder too, of like, you know, sometimes it'll feel weird if you've like had to miss a few shows. Cause like, you know, life is mm-hmm. in the way or whatever. And you get this kind of like, ah, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I'll start to feel like I'm very paranoid of not wanting to be a fucking fraud. You know what I mean? Or, or, oh, a, yeah. or a, this is something I left behind, but as soon as I get in that room, like that's all gone. Um, and just a reminder too. fuck. I mean, I caught up, I caught up with people that, you know, I, I haven't been to any fests in a while. I caught up with people that I hadn't seen since before COVID, you know what I mean? Philly people, Jersey people, um, good number of people traveled for, for this weekend. Long ways. That's awesome. It was awesome. Um, I, I wasn't expecting that, but I'm, you know, not surprised. Um, and yeah, you know, I don't know what Unbroken or Blacklisted's plans are. Um, you know, that like it's like the door's not totally closed, but mm-hmm. it will certainly be a not very frequent thing. Um, so if either of those bands, when you get a chance, and frankly, Indecision too, they've got some great stuff coming up here in New York. But if you get a chance to see them, I think they're all kind of in the category of they're they're certainly like they're not retired or defunct, but they're also not playing a ton. So, yeah. so check them out when you get a chance for sure. Um, but this old man had a blast and um, I'm so happy for you, man. I love that for you. Go. Yeah. Yeah. I love that for me too. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I was jealous, dude. I wish, I wish I could have gone. I, um, yeah, I, th- I think the last time I saw Blacklisted was the uh, Jay Pepito set at this is hardcore where they played. Um specifically old songs and i was watching thinking i'm just gonna watch so many stage dives i bet dude lost lost track i'm making (laughs) i'm making a other like hardcore family tree connections here because our good friend christopher morgato got a black eye friday night um during blacklisted and show so like you know when I saw him, he was like wearing shades, but like clearly wanted people to uh-huh. ask him about it. You know what I mean? He was pretty proud of it. I think um, he would, I think he would cop to that. Um, but you mentioning Jay Pepito, also another Philadelphia, South Jersey legend. That was, um, in my opinion, you know, maybe the best lineup of the wrong side was me on bass and Jay Pepito on guitar. I didn't know he um, was your guitar player when you yeah. uh, when you played your legendary wrong side set. My legendary wrong side set in 2014. Yeah, Jay was Jay was the guitar player. It was fucking sick. That fucking um, We spent a lot of time talking about teaching because um, he was really thinking about it at the time, and I think he would have been awesome, but he went in a different direction, and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs>
That fucking rocks. Yeah, man. I was like, I'm not trying to recruit you. You brought it up. But since you asked, um, let's talk. So it's fucking awesome. But yeah, man, good times. I I, I fucking, I, I think I, it's fun to dunk on Philadelphia because of sports. But in terms of real life and hardcore and things that matter, Philly fucking rules. And uh, I like it and I'm glad um that it's just a little bit down the road from where i'm living so it's pretty easy to get there yeah it's 11 and a half hours for me yeah closer than new york i mean yeah (laughs) 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 not as much traffic but it's a fucking bitch to get to man i'm sure literally anytime we've ever gone to this is hardcore or to philly for a show i think the way home there's a moment where we think was this worth it (laughs) Well, I, just, I always think it is, but if only this ima- imagine if this country had a rail system sophisticated enough that like a band could actually like take their shit and like ride a train to a show. Yeah, imagine a world where <laughs> <laughs> where we weren't bought by fossil fuel companies all the time. It'd be super cool. I drove because you know I'm an old piece of shit now, but I could have taken the train. Um it would probably have been quicker on the train, obviously, honestly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just wanted to have my tunes. Have my I mean, food. I think about a world where Indiana and Ohio fall off the map and everything gets a little closer for me all the you know? time. Yeah. No offense to Ohio or Indiana, but. We were just singing Evansville's praises. Maybe it's close enough that Kentucky could just kind of pick up a little part of it. And then I, we, we could. It's real close to Owensboro, I think. Sure. Where uh, where is that in relation to Paducah? Let's talk about Western Kentucky geography for a second. Fuck, dude! I only think about Paducah. My only context of thinking about Paducah is the the first uh, school shooting that ever happened in Kentucky was in Paducah. I remember that. I uh, it was one of the early school shootings. It like, was one period. of the early school shootings, and I I somehow right. This isn't me bragging. This is just me stating fact. I somehow in college dated not one but two girls from Paducah, Kentucky, um, both of whom had had been present at, at said shooting. Um, Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Good people. That wasn't why we uh, hooked up, by the way. But um, I was going to say, you just got a weird thing. <laughs> I had a weird, you know, sur- sur- survivors of traumatic incidents are drawn to me. Um, that's, that's probably a road I don't want to go down, but I could find a through line there if i wanted to um elizabeth i know you're listening to this so i won't name any other names but uh shout out to your (laughs) shout out no she's not one of the girls but shout Uh out shout out to your friends we had we had fun um there you go so uh shout out to our our good friend elizabeth in athens georgia who texts me about every episode she's a she's a she's a true g one of my oldest friends that's sweet one of my favorite uh one of my favorite punk bands that i look for their record all the time as is from athens i'm pretty sure hot new mexicans no uh <laughs> i think it's uh carry nations yeah fuck yeah yeah Dude. i literally i have it open their discogs for that record open in a tab on my ipod i check it every day to see if somebody's selling one of them fuck that's awesome it's my know... go-to it's my go-to every day i check that's wild i had no idea shout out athens killer town Great scene uh, because Tyler says, I always mention it. REM is from Athens, Georgia. So 
You got it in. There you go. I got it. There's the one. You don't have to mention him again this episode. (laughs) I I promise. I wasn't planning. Nothing against R.E.M. I just love the bit of how much you mentioned him or Michael Stipe. (laughs) I haven't seen Michael Stipe around. I'll look for him tomorrow on Halloween. Um, You know, we'll be out and about trick or treating. Oh, Halloween's tomorrow. Before we get into uh, into this uh, documentary, um, what's uh, what's Kieran tomorrow? Firefighter. Cool. Just like his cool uncle Chad Letty. Fuck yeah. Is that the reason? No. (laughs) He just he just thinks it's sick. The funny thing is, too, on our way to school, we pass a firehouse. And sometimes, you know, they'll have the garage open and be like hanging out. I'll take him over because he'll want to see the fire engine. They're so fucking nice to him. And he's usually my son is usually such a sociable dude. Mm -hmm. He goes like stone faced. I think he's just intimidated. Yeah. But like they're I mean, like, firefighters are intimidating. Yeah. They're like, what's up, little man? You know, and like trying to like high five so cool. him and stuff like that. And he's just like staring straight ahead. But they gave him an like a little replica FDNY helmet. Like it's not a, you know, obviously it's not real, but it's not just yeah. like a generic costume helmet. It actually has yeah. like the FDNY logo on it. So um yeah, he didn't say thank you, but I'm gonna take his little ass over there and parade him around. They're gonna dig it then maybe he'll maybe we'll get a smile out of him i'll be like look man they gave you the helmet that completes this costume um that's awesome so he's stoked yeah he's he's in that he's really into like fire trucks and shit like that right now so it was a kind of a no-brainer for us do do y'all dress up we used to when we had more time and uh ability to uh we used to do couples costumes every year we were uh wesley and buttercup one year (laughs) <laughs> and uh we were winter soldier and black widow another year and sick we did uh um lilu and corbin dallas uh from fifth element oh shit yeah, yeah 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 ashton made the costume and i kind of just assembled mine with various things that i like got an orange t-shirt cut the sleeves off that like wore some some uh some green cargo pants uh bought some like weird nerf guns on ebay that and uh we got uh we got a i i was able to buy a multi-pass like the little like someone made it on etsy mm-hmm. the little multi-pass thing and we put our pictures in it um pretty silly that, shit that's so cool. cool that's fun i'm trying to think we had another one that was oh um one year uh she went as uh desert rose d from it's always sunny in Philadelphia. And I yeah. went as her mentally handicapped boyfriend, Kev, oh my who God. I put my shirt on backwards and wore a big chain and sweatpants. And I carried a bowl of popcorn around with me everywhere. Dude, that is so <laughs> sick. Speaking of our friend, uh, firefighter Chad Letty, have you ever seen pictures of when he was Ongo uh, Lagosian, the when Frank Reynolds pretended to be an art critic? no that rocks yeah. though he did he nailed you know just <laughs> walking around going derivative derivative <laughs> that's fucking badass dude he nailed it dude it was we so uh good. my my buddy used to have every year he would have an it's always sunny themed uh birthday party yeah and he would like he would put like uh, a rotisserie chicken in some denim shorts and have denim <laughs> chicken and he had lots of different drinks he would make that were like i can't remember any of them now but um but we would uh 
it always ended in a greased up watermelon in the pool and all of us fighting over it. Oh my God. And uh, beating the shit out of each other for it. It was pretty cool. <laughs> I have probably quoted the Frank's intervention episode more than anything else in my entire life. Um, even just the small, you know, you know, it's, it's become definitely a source of like obnoxious inside jokes between me and a group of my friends where I could just like go up to one of my buddies and go, I'm wearing clothes now, bitch. Like just the most random lines from that. I love it. Um, Dude. I, uh, that's something I always want to rewatch, but then I get really upset whenever I start it and I realize all the episodes that have been removed because they're offensive. I didn't realize that, but I'm also not surprised. Um, I, I think it's cowardly, but uh, it is cowardly, but it, uh, you know, they didn't just... mean any of those things in a uh, bad taste. I know they certainly came out swinging. Um, Gang gets racist. I know. First episode. <laughs> I mean, again, shout out to, Philadelphia. Um it all comes around. It all comes around. So fuck yeah. This is uh this is not a Philly centered podcast, but uh you know. And the, the the Phillies lost in the baseball playoffs, so nobody had to worry about uh the know, town being, tearing down. Right, or being distracted by that by the World Series so they could focus on the show anyway. So, you know, you're welcome, Philadelphia. I um, love that when when the Phillies lose, you you're like everybody's safe. Yeah. <laughs> oh they're dude their sports fans are the phillies and the eagles win dude danger the, the worst <laughs> it's cool. where they invented what they like the they put fucking crisco on the light poles on the light to try poles. to keep people pretty cool from climbing. Still it's, did a, it. it's a special play yeah they still do. Awesome. of course they dude, do it's my favorite i i know we need to talk about this documentary my favorite was when the eagles were on that fucking run when they won the super bowl mm -hmm. and there was a viral video of some dude getting yelled at by some like karen on the street and he's just so drunk and he's just yelling go birds go birds and he's <laughs> go like shirtless birds. and he's so drunk it's awesome go i think about birds. that all the time fucking oh my great God. rocks fucking three hoagies to the wind buddy water <laughs> water ice um oh yeah, man. man billy's a special place for sure uh but yeah man go birds um the hey Here's a transition. We're going to talk about Just an American Boy, Steve Earle documentary. Some of the footage is from the Theater of Living Arts in Philadelphia. Okay. Um, and there's also a footage of of Steve at Jim's Steaks fucking housing a cheesesteak at one point. And they're like, joking about him throwing up on stage right, later. Like, like, like super close to when it's time for them to play. And that man fucking drinks a Dr. Brown's soda and houses a whole cheesesteak. Um, Couldn't yeah, be me. I, I want to die just looking at it, but he does. Couldn't be me. Goes up and plays probably like a two hour set. So yeah, man. So yeah, we're talking about just an American boy, which is a documentary filmed in 2002, released in 2003. And there's a companion live record with it. Today, we're going to be focused on the doc. Um, and, and we're going to dedicate some time separately um, in another episode to to doing a track by track of the excellent live record. Because um, there's songs that are on that that aren't on this. So it's, exactly. worth, it's worth talking about it when we can talk about the whole piece. I agree. And uh, if we talked about this track by track and the documentary, 
be here all night because we just wasted 30 of your minutes talking about a uh, blacklisted in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. It just, it, it comes with the package, you know? So yeah, yeah, that's what's up. Um, but yeah, I, uh, you know, so if, if you're listening chronologically, this is coming after we talked about uh, the Jerusalem record um, and, you know, of, of the many amazing things about rec- that record, the thing that was probably the most noteworthy from a news slash pop culture perspective was John Walker's blues, right. And all the, the controversy. controversy, right. So this is a snapshot of, of Steve and the Dukes lives and touring in that time period in, in, in the fall of 2002, right. Or right around the release of Jerusalem. Yeah. In the buildup for the Iraq war, which is, uh, yeah. Plays heavy in this shit. Really? Um, there's one thing in the book about this that I found uh, interesting enough to make a note of. Um, and it's about the soundtrack and it's about how it uh, it tested the twang trust because uh, lacking a budget for a soundtrack, the producer called upon digital technology to get the job done. And I love you'll you'll love this. Um, a laptop, a copy of digital performer and a few firewire drives were the tools of the trade. The signal was sent directly out of house console onto the performer's eight tracks. Kennedy then had to do something he hates to do, and that's employ Pro Tools. <laughs> <laughs> um, crossfading the tunes to follow the song sequence as it was in the film. It's the best way to mix the songs from different shows. Um, and uh, he said, my biggest job on that record was to make it not sound like Pro Tools. <laughs> It's just so funny how how much things have changed, right? I know. Because I remember in, in that time period, any mention of Pro Tools was just like, oh, you're not fucking rock and roll if you're using that shit. And now it's just so ubiquitous. Yep. You know Everybody what I mean? Like every, you yep. have to use it. And, yep. it's, and it's it authentically captures whatever you put into it. Pre-production um, wouldn't exist without Pro Tools. Oh, absolutely. But I could totally see, especially some of my first studio experiences were around this time in the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. And especially when we did the half acre gunroom record working with Doug easily at easily McCain studios who had recorded the replacements, the white stripes, stuff like that. There, there was not a computer screen to be found. Um, and I just can't imagine making a record like that now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the, the first few times I recorded um, in like an actual studio, um well i recorded an eight track rec demo yeah like in a bathroom basically um for my first band that ever recorded um but then when that band recorded again we recorded with chris owens at headbanging kill your mama studios in louisville Mm. who uh he was in lords and um he recorded like coliseum and black cross and lots of like bigger records at that time i can't remember uh what all chris did but now he lives in california building uh record studios for celebrities in their houses whoa um that's awesome i got to see the board and how it worked and know that it's real like this thing that he's doing is like it's magic he's a wizard and it's it's fucking genius shit but um rattletooth got to record a couple of our records with him too and it's fucking pretty crazy shit but now I can't imagine recording without a computer there. <laughs> well, yeah, it's if only for like, you know, how how much time it saves and how much easier it makes mm-hmm. your life. But like I'm thinking about the process of punching in 
you know, oh yeah, like just we were doing everything by ear and it worked. It was just a very time intensive process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the I'm not an engineer or a producer, but I know the best ones are like, even when you got everything in front of you, mix with your ears, not with your yeah. eyes. You know what I mean? But like, it's, it's such an invaluable tool, but I am not at all surprised to hear that he was bummed that he had to like run out, run it into pro tools to be able to, to capture the, the live recordings uh, for the soundtrack. That's fucking hilarious. Yeah. Very, very funny. <clears throat> so do you want to talk about the movie? Yeah, let's talk about the movie. Uh, first person you see is Justin. Dude, it made me emotional. Like yeah. seeing Justin up there playing guitar. It's It was both seeing Justin playing on stage next to his dad. And then also it reminded me too of how rare it is to see Steve without a guitar. Dude, yeah, yeah. I wrote that too. It's weird. It's very strange to see him with no guitar. Yeah. Um, also, how bummed were you? The, the first thing that happens is the vocal effect. Ashes to ashes, <laughs> dust. You know, like I'll give him credit that he does it live too. Did it live. He didn't just launch into the song. He did the intro and everything. So yeah, fuck it, we'll do it live. Yeah. Um yeah, but yeah, um, my only dude, um, the uh the cutting of it was so abrasive at times. It's I love this documentary because of the subject matter, the time period, mm -hmm. everything like that. It's pretty thrown together. Um, yes, it's not the it's not the best doc. The uh, <laughs> his handling of the mic stand and the not paying attention that like you shouldn't cut at times when he's like grabbing the mic stand because yeah. if you he might not have done it at the other show and he didn't. Yeah. So he's just constantly so, going from hands on the mic stand to hands on his sides, yeah. hands on the mic stand, hands on his sides. It's pretty it, funny. It's almost like they didn't think about that. So they were, and it was like, do we have enough footage of, you know, like yeah. Yeah, the, the, the editing job was yeah. a little, nobody much. was worried about continuity in this, uh, no, in this enterprise. Um, Not at all. Yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty cool. Um, uh, when it ends that though, that quote, I just wasn't raised as an artist to believe that you censor yourself because of being afraid of offending someone. That was wrote, a cool thing to be the first thing he says. I wrote that down. Exactly. So like, sick. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it, 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 it really is a good tone setter to like, not just like what it means today. Cause we talked about this a little on the Jerusalem episode, right? Like in a time where you've got a combination of, very low media literacy, but also a lot of people who in bad faith are just looking to read things out of context. Right. Mm -hmm. And so something like, Hey, I wrote this from the perspective of a person is immediately taken as you are endorsing all of the views yeah. of that person. Um, like, and you know, this parts of the documentary that, that examine the, the reaction, not just on the right, but in much of mainstream media to John Walker's blues, um, really like captures that, like not capable of nuance or appreciating art as all at all. They immediately accuse Steve of like endorsing the Taliban basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, uh, there's, there's a, there's a YouTube like movie critic. He's like one, one of the biggest ones that I, um, I don't follow him, but I watch his videos sometimes just to see how much of a creep he still is. Um, the, uh, the critical drinker. Have you ever heard of him? Mm-mm. Um, he's this guy, he's like this Scottish guy and he basically just like, he's just like a 
a fucking I don't know, just kind of a prick and just tr- watches movies and trashes them. But okay. the thing that got me to like pay attention to him was he did a fawning review of that first Daily Wire movie, huh. the Run Hide Fight movie, which is they didn't make, but they helped release. It was basically Die Hard, but a school shooting. Um where like a girl stops all the bad guys with guns in her school by I'm gonna guess you can imagine she becomes the right the good person with a gun. If only um, it works that way in real life. Yeah, if only. Um unfortunately people stand outside the door while entire classrooms are massacred. Yeah. Um but uh but I he made he like like a fawning review about that and um I uh I, sometimes I'll I'll catch back up and I'll just like search like him and like people like talking about him to see like a you know a video of somebody watching his video and like pointing out like how dishonest he is and it's really funny because the people who accuse you of having an agenda always have an agenda always man <laughs> and he he's his whole thing is always talking about like the message and it's basically just like anti-racism like that's the message and he's upset by it and he's obsessed by anything that isn't uh anti-woman or anti anti-racist and he'll talk about it as like this you know this woke hollywood he's used that, that term all the time and it's like i love that you're so into being mad about this message in Dude. quotes that you're talking about, but it's very clear what yours is. <laughs> what a sad existence. It sucks ass, dude. He's <laughs> incredibly popular. It sucks. I've never heard of him and I'm not going to look him up, but I bet because we've talked about this, it's going to be in my recommendations Probably. somehow. Yeah. Um, can't wait. But yeah, it, it was the same. I love, to, I love telling you about shitty people. It's my favorite thing. I mean, making the connection here. I just read an article this morning. You know, Mr. Um, we're going to fight cancel culture. Ron DeSantis just banned any pro-Palestinian student group from Florida public mm-hmm. universities. But he's, you know, and, and an, a reporter rightfully asked him, like, is that not? canceling is that not cancel culture and his was like oh this is different and had like a bullshit you know like completely untrue explanation like as if as if a student group in tallahassee is providing material support to hamas you know or some shit like that so easy to do Um, that yeah right um (laughs) so so, you know one just a a straight up lie and like a, a wildly implausible lie um but like yeah, man. Um, pause. My wife is locked out. Okay. She just texted me and I was like, oh shit. So I'm going to cut it here. We're going to pick right back up. Sounds great. In a couple seconds. Haven't had to do this in a while. All right. <laughs> so yeah, just always an agenda, like you said. Right. Well, yeah, you're talking about Ron DeSantis banning things. It's like these people hate European style democracies, but that's what France did. <laughs> Dude. Thousand percent. So, yeah, oh, it's so cool. funny. But yeah, the the, you know, the voice of, uh, of of at the time, the snowflake left in Steve Earle in the early 2000s is like, I'm not censoring myself because I'm afraid of offending someone. And um, that I agree. That's such a killer way to start this documentary. Yeah, fucking uh, rocks. That uh the opening uh the opening song though, um 
him playing Hometown Blues. I'm pretty sure he told the same Shirts Texas story when I saw him play this. It's a great story about his you know, family moving to a different house and he didn't know. Yeah, It's very good. Yeah. And we'll probably talk about it again when we do the live record because I think I think all these stories are on the the live record too. Well, and I just look there's a there's a line in there too, like I didn't know that you could get between Texas and Tennessee any other way but hitchhiking. It's pretty good. I think I've yeah. heard him say that in an interview before too. He loves that. He's got little like he's got he's got bits. He's and got he's bits. had them for a while. Oh yeah. He's he's worked these bits out for over over years. It's pretty oh, good. Yeah. Um dude, two two moments. Uh that made me laugh in this was uh there was a really goofy moment where a man's pretending to like film with a crank camera did you notice that i did notice that it's yeah. pretty funny that's that, that part made me laugh and uh there's a woman uh there's like a four second shot of a woman in a fucking daze wearing just a giant silly hat and it's fucking awesome <laughs> she looks like her soul is being sucked out of her she looks so tired or so gone in, so, in whatever way it's at awesome. the at the bluegrass show in at texas the bluegrass show. Oh. she's just staring off into space and it cuts to her and i'm like why would they cut to there this <laughs> she looks awful well they probably one of the things i appreciate there was definitely some like clever you know, jokey editing in there. Like it, we'll talk about it later, but a few times where they would like circle something. Yeah. Like in the shot, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like when Steve, you want 50 and a 35 and they pass the sign and it says 40 right now or something like that. Um, <laughs> I missed that. That's awesome. I remember when he pinches his girlfriend's butt later, they pause it and circle. Yeah, they like circle. So there were moments it's like that. Good. Like they That's were clearly awesome. just having a good time editing. That's very thing. fun. Um, the next, uh, the next thing before the it gets to him at the the death penalty uh, thing. How did you feel about him uh, being bummed about the Yankees losing? I knew that would, like the funny thing too is I've I've said this before. Really, I think Steve Earle's main character flaw is that he's a Yankees fan. Um, <laughs> I've still never fully understood it, um, but it's also funny to think about it at that time because this is coming off of what they, they won 96, 98, 99, 2000, and then went to game seven of the world series in 2001 and lost and somehow felt like they should have won because of nine 11, like they were owed that one um, or something. Um, and so it was the year after that, just insufferable. Like, no, I refuse to believe that the Yankees losing a game for once is going to ruin your day, Steve. Um and who was it? Was that like his manager he was talking to? I, I can't remember who he was yeah, talking yeah. to. It was pretty funny though. But I love that they kept that in. Like, yeah, you know, um, and especially in the times before you could like just check the score on your phone and stuff like that. Yeah. It was important. You saw your buddy. You had to be like, oh, uh, Yankees lost. Um, yeah. Steve, I would geek out every once in a while. I'd like just like flip on a game and see him in very good seats behind home plate at Yankee Stadium. Because you can't miss him. Yeah. He's huge. He's a big and, guy. And the beard. the beard. Yeah. And I'm just like, man. There's the like, guy. I'd like to see a baseball game with Steve Earle. Um, but yeah, man, that's funny. I didn't even write that down, but I, of course, remembered it and you knew I would. Oh, yeah. I wrote it down because I wanted to know how you feel. About <laughs> I feel good. Same about it as I always have. Felt good. <laughs> I felt good, man. Yeah, it's good um, that they lost. The uh, the death penalty speech, though, very cool. Very cool, man. The way he articulates himself, the not in my name thing really got me. And it, it made me think about what the, you know, the 
Jewish Voices for Peace and whatnot are doing right now, which I think is very cool. Yeah. I mean, that's powerful. It's that's... very powerful. I am seeing so many Jewish people, especially young Jewish people, speak up uh, about what's happening in Gaza in a way that I'd, I'd never have before. Yeah. Or those voices were, they were there, but there weren't a ton of them. Yeah. The folks that had dared to speak out, you know, often faced a ton of attacks from their own community. Um, uh, accusations of being like self-hating or on the side of terrorists or things like that. And I think that's really what it comes down to though. Cause they're not like, just because a person is, you know, Jewish, they're not the only ones responsible for standing up. Steve makes the point too, like, well, anybody that's like, you know, a citizen here, the state is doing things in your name. Yep. You know what I mean? And um, that applies to the death penalty too. I also appreciate it in this speech. He talked about elevating the voices of victims of violent crime. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Cause I think sometimes people who are, you know, death penalty abolitionists get, accused of like ignoring the victims and just yeah. focusing on the perpetrators and instead him realizing like no the the pathway to liberation includes these people and especially the voices of those who recognize as much pain as they're in and That's as much as solve it right as much as they're angry killing another person isn't going to bring whoever they lost back um yeah. and the courage that it takes to say that but also steve's role in helping to like elevate some of those voices it's just really courageous yeah, no, it's very cool. I think cutting from that to the Nora Guthrie stuff was very well, like, planned. <laughs> it was very well planned, and I love the way that they interspliced footage of, like, young Steve with Woody. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and you could tell Nora Guthrie was, like, genuinely emotional, like, talking about when she heard Christmas Steve in Washington sing. for the first time. Yeah. yeah, come back, Woody Guthrie, come back to us now, right as she was working on this exhibit to try to like she's like he's coming yeah. he's, he's coming yeah, that's I know. so cute it was i kind of I, I guess it wouldn't have fit in but i kind of wanted to hear more from her um yeah dude i straight up teared uh, up listening to her talk for a little bit it was yeah it was very intense um but uh but yeah just like that another abrupt cut and now steve's sitting outside drinking coffee in san francisco waiting to go get interviewed on a radio show or did I skip that, something in between? Um, the next thing that happens is the Christmas in Washington. Uh, right. So, and he does the extended, like this song could be about, right. you know, Abby Hoffman. This song could be about Joan Baez, which right. my dad's been pushing Joan Baez on me a lot lately. I've never really dug. I haven't either. Um, I think I'm going to soon. Yeah, we should give Joan a, a try. I, um, I love what he's, you know, it's like this was written on election night, but it's not about elections. Yeah. This was written, yeah. This is written about Washington. It's written about uh, Christmas. It's not about Christmas. Right. <laughs> it's another good bit. Yeah, like, it's very good. Um, the George Ryan thing, I didn't really, wasn't too uh, familiar with that situation, but that's very cool. Yeah. People like that, people should know those stories more often because... It really, it, I feel like we always focus on the people who do the atrocities and we never focus on people who are like heroes. Yeah. It's the real, uh, we'll be remembered for everything we did wrong. We'll be forgotten for everything we did right. We're, we love that. We love that. 
<laughs> I mean, we as as humans, as human beings, we love that. But mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, no, powerful performance, man. Very cool. Um, yeah, but yeah, then straighten into the radio interview. Yeah, and that I'll is say, an abrupt cut. <laughs> it's an abrupt cut, and I'll say this because I don't remember. Steve was rocking those clear frames. 20 years before anybody else. Was. I know that's what I'm rocking now. Yeah. Like I hadn't, I, I don't know if I'd ever seen him from that period, but I was like, I don't feel like I ever saw anybody wearing those glasses until a few years ago. And there he was in 2002 rocking those early, um, ad early adopter, man. That's him. Um, I mean, this is one of the, uh, a powerful part in that it, as he's getting ready to do this interview, they splice together all of these news clips and like, gross, you know, quotes and, you know, from Fox news, but not just from Fox news of they're also gross. Yeah. Talking about John Walker's blues, basically accusing him of empathizing with the Taliban, yada, 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 like, you know, all this stuff in like really bad faith. And one of the things that Steve says in this radio interview, I wrote down, it's so powerful and, again, so applicable right now. He wrote, empathizing is not honoring. And the idea that someone has to pay, even if it's the wrong person, is a really dangerous idea. And that applies right now. Very much so. Like, I've been hurt. Somebody's got to pay. That was the U.S. after 9-11. That's... I mean, I love Batman too, but that's yeah. not a great model. No, no, <laughs> not to be emulated. It's not healthy. The whole point of Batman is he's un he's he's unhinged. Yeah, it's a greatly damaged person. We shouldn't be trying to be Batman. <laughs> um, definitely not, um, dude. The thing that fucked me up on the uh, on that radio interview that I thought was a very profound thing to say was, uh, especially in two thousand three. Or 2002 was when this mm -hmm. was. Yeah, in yeah. 2002. Um, when he said, uh, it's frightening, there was a need for a right-wing alternative to CNN, but here it is. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, he and yeah, because it's also like Fox News has just been so ubiquitous now, but at the time they were really like New. finding their voice yeah. as, you know, or they would have, I remember the ads would be like fair and balanced uh, when it was anything but, but yeah, like. I, who knew that it was going to become the fucking, you know, toxic phenomenon that it did. Um, but they came along just at the right time with a bunch of people that wanted, wanted an other to blame. And they got, they got and continue to get those others every night on Fox news. Um, so, yeah. Um, Man, and one thing, it, this was really like when I was listening to this, I or when I was watching this and they're talking about like he's talking about Lynn and whatnot. It really, dude, it made me think of this, the Dillinger 4 song. Uh, it's a fine line between the monkey and the robot. Hmm. I don't know that one. Okay. It's off Midwestern Songs of the Americas or whatever. Mm -hmm. Can I read some lyrics to you real quick? Please do. For, for the audience uh, who may not be as initiated with punk rock like like we are, but uh, spend a day trying to sum it up with one quotation. Spend a lifetime as a model of the phrase modern man automated to withhold our thoughts with, with hesitation. Life of redundancy with single mind and double face. And I got to wonder 
where such a small man got so much hate. Got our own opinions, but don't throw them on the open floor, get lost in the repetition, and don't want to hear them anymore. Thousands of us dead today, thousands went unfed today, and all we talk about is the fucking weather. Got your fingers in your ear, because you've heard it all before. Roll your eyes if there's nothing left to say. Here, it is nothing. Here it's nothing's changing, and I think it's something we cannot ignore. Dismiss your boredom, because I won't be what you became. Life's so happy over there on the sidelines, and that's where you'll stay. Got our own opinions, but don't throw them on the open floor. Get lost in reputation, don't want to hear them anymore. Thousands went unfed today. Th- or thousands of us dead today, thousands went unfed today. And we all talk about the fucking weather. And I'll keep singing the same songs. And I'm sorry if you're bored now, but I can't understand or I can't understand spending life ignoring the other side of the story. And I think that is so cool that like same year. Yeah. This they're writing a song that applies so directly to Steve Earle writing a song, just telling the other side of the story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, it still applies today. Absolutely. People spend their entire lives ignoring the other side of the story, just never wanting to hear anything that even calls into question the idea they made up about a situation. Yeah. And I say this as somebody who said, I've opened my mouth. I've said things that were wrong. Yeah. That's fine. You can be wrong. <laughs> you can be wrong. But I, the point I think, is, when you find out you're wrong, you move. <laughs> yeah, you move. I mean, that's that's the thing. Like when people treat learning and growing and changing your mind as some sort of a sign of weakness rather than as like the point of being a human, right? Because yeah. um, there's so much there too, like as he's explaining like what inspired like when first of all thanks for sharing that man i fucking love the dillinger four and i need to honor them them. yeah yeah it's been a long time since i've listened um you know talking about like i saw a kid that looked like he hadn't eaten in about a week and it made me think about my kid because he always you know what's he's like he always looks like he hasn't eaten in a week even when i've just fed him um and like Again, that part none, broke my heart, dude. Right. Nowhere in there is that a fucking endorsement of the Taliban yeah, or Osama no. bin Laden. It is, I see a human being in front of me, and damn, looks like he's in rough shape right now. And I can put myself in the shoes of his parents who haven't seen him in a while. And this is the first thing they're seeing. And um, like that's a story worth telling, right? Um it's it's become just such a similar thing like you're you can't you when anybody who brings attention to the you know genocide being committed in gaza right now is expected to like to immediately condemn hamas like nobody endorsed hamas like like nobody i'm not saying nobody i'm some assholes did but like yeah nobody some cynical I'm, pricks there, right i'm sure. not i'm not I'm not endorsing what Hamas did to innocent people, what they continue to do, what they are, you know, doing, you know, and and it's not like they give any more of a fuck about, you know, their, their neighbors and community members who are under Israeli bombardment. Um, Yeah. And it's also like, like, you can also say like, this was inevitable without saying like they deserved it. Exactly. Like you can, to make the point, 
that that we did last time that like just like the US was responsible for the development of the Taliban and Osama bin Laden the Israeli government was responsible for the development of Hamas they preferred them as an alternative to the PLO yep right um and so All they did was hijack planes yeah <laughs> that was cool oh. <laughs> but but it's sort of like you can't you know like again it doesn't hijack planes them, but... and then not crash them into buildings <laughs> right they just landed in different places but i think it is still interesting you know that as much as this bombardment is relentless the the death toll mounts every single day um what like war crimes committed right in front of our eyes telling people to evacuate when there's nowhere to evacuate to um there's you know the sentiment still amongst many israelis is fuck Netanyahu. Yeah. Because I think a lot of them are seeing... Because he's going like, to get us into a war. Right. Like, he's first of all... our kids killed. First of all, like, his antagonism is part of what, you know, continued poking the bear for mm -hmm. this to happen, even though we supposedly have the most advanced security state in the world, hung us out to dry, to suffer. Um, and now it only gets worse, right? By killing shit tons of innocent people that didn't have anything to do with what Hamas did, um, that have been suffering themselves for generations. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, right? But it, but yeah. it all is saying like that there is that reactionary um, projection is always there to like anybody who tries to tell a different story or just like recognize a different angle is immediately accused of siding with it. Because or being they unpatriotic. Right. Because they live in a world where they want to reduce every fucking thing to good guys, bad guys. And just like a three-year-old playing with toys. Thing. Right. And it never has been, but that is how they think of things. It's like cops good, criminals bad. What is a criminal? You know what I mean? Like things like that. Yeah. Just seeing the world in this kind of like, they don't fucking understand art. They don't want to understand art. You know, like it's, uh, and those folks, you know, it, it's not some a left-wing woke mob that runs the media it's that attitude actually you yeah. know it's it's the one that it's the one that that interviews a gazan who just lost half of his family and the first thing you say to him is like well do you condemn hamas you know what i mean when this man yeah. just watched his family die um like that's a normal thing to ask a grieving person you know what i mean and, but that's what that's what the bbc did right so yeah I've that that book I've been reading that American exception book is like one of the things it talks about is and it it it, it, it talks about Israel a little bit because it applies what like who owns the state of exception so who owns the ability to do illegal things and just get away with it because they get to dictate the terms of it and we are one of those people who get to live in a state of exception because we get to execute you know overseas wars and we still get to watch our netflix and go to the movies and yeah our popcorn and drink our coke and go to chick-fil-a and do all the things as if there aren't people being drone struck and killed and as if we don't have a bunch of soldiers who are in bases they can't leave because it's too dangerous outside the base mm -hmm. but they're there yep just in case or they're there to protect a client or were there to protect an oil like yeah. 
an oil derrick or we're the there interests we're, of capital yeah, yeah we're all over the place to do that and we get to dictate this exception we get to go in i mean it's the fucking in the, i mean we dipped we fucked up when we started outsourcing that to private companies and then they machine gunned and grenade launched people in squares and and then we had to realize like, oh, these actually aren't our state. These are paid mercenaries doing this shit and in our name. And now, oops, this has kind of opened us up to things that don't look great because we have no control over these people. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. And yeah, but it's it's but we still did no nobody pays for that shit. They get yeah. pardoned. Of course. Of course. Of course. Because we live in a state of exception. And the media fucking they're they're another leg of it. Like the mm -hmm. the whole uh the whole argument this guy, uh, Aaron Good, the author, makes is that we live in a tripartite state between a a public state, which is who we elect, the security state, which is our military, and the deep state, which is the power elite, the wealth that dictate the terms of how it all. And we've moved into a situation where they hold all the power. Mm -hmm. They buy our politicians. They fund our militaries. They... But then they, but they're just taking money out of one pocket and putting in another, like, yeah. And then we well, all just go to work for them. That's right. And since, uh, cool. <laughs> and now they can, you know, legally, they can fund all of it and, and don't have to disclose a bit of it. Nope. Right. Like un, unlimited donations, um, relaxed disclosure rules. You can make a pack and fund anything you want through that. And Other countries can make packs to control yeah. the politicians in this country, like what's going on right now. Right. And the yeah. politicians can pretend like, well, that's them. That's an independent organization. I don't have anything to do with. Yeah. Sorry, everybody, that we're recording this amongst the uh, <laughs> this 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 atrocity going on that we just can't stop bringing it up because. Of course not. Because everything relates to it. Still. Everything does. And I mean, God, like who fucking this is 21 years ago. Yeah, this footage. Um, I'll just, it makes me. I'm nostalgic for this time we had talked about, not because of you know, all the fucked up things after nine eleven, but it was a just it was an interesting time to be growing up, and so, I like, you know, I'm the same age as Justin. Um, I think a lot. Like, you know, there's a part pretty soon after this, right, where. I mean, he talks he's, about him and then it just transitions to him. Yeah. He's talking about him playing and like, God damn, he's so proud of Justin, man. Like yeah. you can tell he is. It really, you know, hurts. you like seeing that. When he now. talks about the road dads being at the gig. It, yeah. It makes the joke. Like one of, one of them made a joke, like how many of these kids up on this stage were conceived in the parking lot? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> like, so but just cute. So funny to think about too, right? And like the and just that time passing because this was Justin was twenty then. Here we are twenty years after that, man. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So um, watching them at practice wrecked me, dude. <laughs> like he's got the guitar and Justin's trying to figure out the organ the part. Organ or part. Oh my god, what was the line? I didn't write it down, but he asked him something like, "Are you?" It's, it's like it's. I don't think he used afraid, but Steve is like, are you afraid to blah, blah, blah again? Like, you know, messing up the part. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and Justin's like, well, I ain't afraid of shit, but you know, it's something <laughs> about like, I have to like figuring out how to play this organ part. And I'm thinking, it's just so funny. Like what did it expect to be there? Like playing in your dad's band, 
you yeah. know, especially at this time. God, um, it's it's the most special part about this documentary. Like I highly recommend if anybody hasn't watched this, watch it just to see Steve with his son for a really special time in their relationship. Yeah, I think a time when Justin had come around on his dad and stopped being mad at him before maybe being mad at him again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, for sure. Because he does get kicked out of the band shortly after this. But, uh, dude, I just started listening to that new Jason Isbell and the song about Justin is fucking oh, man. beautiful. That wrecks me too. When we were close is the name of that song. How uh, smart is that song? So good. It's so smart. I was reading the lyrics to Ashton and explaining them to her. <laughs> like, it's crazy how like I was like I was like because Justin used to dress up like real nice when they would when he would play like and I yeah. was showing her in the documentary I was like that's what he used to dress like when he'd play so like yeah. when he says like you're dressed to the nines and whatnot and he like oh and just the the Fort right. Worth blues the Rex's blues to Fort Worth blues god dude just fucking kill me it's so fucking sweet he is I mean Isabel is very much in the all these songwriters that we've talked about towns to steve to everyone onward he's definitely a part of that that record yeah. i mean we could maybe on a an episode where we do a when we have another guest that could be one that makes an appearance i could do a whole episode just on the song king of oklahoma um which i think is probably the most poignant description of the opioid crisis that like it's a I've, pretty I've heard it's pretty we, dismal right? record in a lot of ways yeah, but it's yeah. got some got some good tracks on it i'll save that i'll save my opinions on that on that for if we go in depth on it but Absolutely. uh back to the documentary and steve yelling about chicken fingers he's just like me for real <laughs> dude steve loves fucking gut bomb food man yeah fan of his food like like i said chicken fingers dude when they were playing in philly walks down to jim steaks eats a whole ass cheesesteak and a soda maybe two hours before they're set that, the danger zone my friend this is the danger zone as I a mean, vocalist I, that's a danger zone i bet he was fine but yeah i'm like i'm i got the bubble guts and the burps just thinking about it you know what i mean like um another thing that reminds me so in the live clips on the bass drum you know there was a sign that said no iraq war yeah um and one, it was like the war at this point was not a totally foregone conclusion, yeah. you know, which is important to remember in this time period. But two, it, it also reminded me it was around this time period was the first time I saw drive-by truckers. And Patterson Hood had stenciled on his amp the whole thing. If you voted for George W. Bush, you are an asshole. <laughs> And I just love like, and they were playing Jackson, Mississippi yep. with that on there, man. So I'm just like, it, it's easy to forget when you watch things like this, that like, I guarantee maybe not with Steve, but maybe because he faced all kinds of shit, but like dudes would straight up come up and like try to kick your ass if you had that shit on. I, like, I do think though, at that time we were less polarized as a country to the point where I think people could take that shit a little bit more. Man, then now I, it's like you, it's I, like somebody fucking shot your dad to say shit like that now. I no, I we are definitely more polarized now. Like we're but maybe we're more sure. likely to post about it and then we were more likely to fight about it. Yeah, but I just like it was straight up if you like I had 
at one point a bumper sticker on my truck that said this was when I was living in Mississippi and they still had a Confederate battle flag on the state flag. Oh yeah. Um, so very they, recently that they, yeah, they just recently ended up changing, but there was a, a ballot initiative in 2000 um, that failed where they tried to do it. And I had uh, a bumper sticker on my truck that said, you know, just like move forward, change the flag or something like that. Mm-hmm. And multiple times, dude, I had just straight up like at a gas station, just random dudes uh, get aggressive. You know what I mean? I think so. Like, I'm just a fucking stranger. I didn't say shit to them. You know what I mean? Like, but the experience of like seeing a bumper sticker and just being able to be like, hmm, I disagree. And going about with your day. <laughs> that's I not saw a guy with doing. the Let's Go Brandon dis- uh, bumper sticker today. I just <laughs> laughed. It was funny. Well, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, dude. A whole nother thing. But, you know, just so I, I agree, I think, I mean, I'll tell you a couple of things. We're more polarized now, more quick to anger. There's also just a lot more guns floating around. Not that there weren't many guns then, but like there's just a shit ton more now. There's mm-hmm. like if you carried back then. You were on, you know, you were either like a sports but you know, you you had yeah. you were part of like a, a, a little bit of a niche subculture. Mm mm-hmm if you carried, you know, legally or not back then. And now it's just so much more common in certain parts of the country um, due to like, you know, mass shootings, excessive paranoia, all the reasons that a lot of people that 20 years ago would never have thought, even if they like had a gun at home, would never have thought I need to carry I should it have it on the person. Yeah. yeah, do. Um, and uh, yeah, headline doesn't make anybody safer. You know, the, the mass shooting in Maine this past weekend. Unreal. There, there was a quote somebody said and like you know this is a person very traumatized who just witnessed something awful but without a hint of irony i'm surprised this happened here because you know so many people carry and it was like hmm it's almost as if that doesn't actually stop this from happening yeah you know what i mean it's almost as if somebody having a weapon is not going to prevent this you know did you see what uh of all people, Piers Morgan said about this. I didn't know. He had somebody on and was talking about like, it was like, do you think like he was he was like, I think gun control is the is you guys sh- should stop calling it that you need to call it gun safety. You really need to make sure you're changing the language because control is making it sound like people want to like control you. But if you use words like safety is like and this person's kind of arguing with him a little bit about like, you know, like you know, whether or not it's even necessary. And he brings up that Kinder eggs, mm-hmm. the little candy egg with a toy in it. Yeah. Are act- Do you know they're banned in America now? Oh, is it because you could choke on the toy? Yeah. 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 And, and they, he's we, like, we love freedom, but we won't let. We'll ban a Kinder egg, but we yeah. won't ban an, an assault rifle. Yeah. And I say this as somebody who thinks about buying an assault rifle sometimes. He's 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 got a good point. Yeah, I mean, that's it's amazing. Thing, I can't believe I've got to give it to Piers Morgan, I'm, but I really got to give it to Piers Morgan. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I, th- I, th- I totally like you say control that implies like something, but like, I don't know, like, I don't want to get into all of this right now, but like every time when I, when I think about like all the shit we go through to like own and operate a motor vehicle without raising an yes. eyebrow, getting licensed, yes. having insurance on it, things like that. Do all that of us for kind guns. Of, it's fine. Yeah. 
Uh, like I would do that for guns. I would I would do if yeah. I had to do that for the gun that I have, I would do that. Yeah. Um and if I decided I wanted to get into having a more, you know, advanced weapon, I would I think that's something I should have to go through. Yeah. To but it's, it, I think that they should have to call my girlfriend and ask her if she feels safe. <laughs> 100%. But I mean that's the thing like they try to present it as this, this like all or nothing you know what I mean? Like you cannot, you know, make any kind of thing governing it. And I think that proposal, like we clear, the framework is already in place. All of us fucking get a driver's license, recognize that that's there. Or, and, and even if, if nothing else are expected to have insurance on the dangerous thing that we operate, you know, um, not everybody does, but guess what? Most people do. Um, and I think that would, actually solve a whole lot of this shit um yeah because i mean how many times do we they 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 try to create this reality that like if you ban assault weapons all these people will just go around and like find ways to buy them no they won't they won't know how yep i don't know where i would get one right now no i you know what i mean years for years because of the cold war you couldn't you couldn't get an AK-47 right. in America. And I was like, oh, yeah, you just can't get it. I knew like, you could, but I didn't know how I would do that. So I would like, never try to do that. Nine times out of 10, every time you see, you'll see this was like a, you know, legally purchased firearm that this person got, you know, even in regardless of the state across however many flags. And I guarantee you that in a majority of those cases, it's the same thing as what happens with fucking suicide, man. Do you know, there's one mm-hmm. indicator about about level of risk about a, a person whether or not they're going to carry it out it's access to firearm that's it that's it if you've got a gun around you are so much more likely to do it versus i'm in a dark place i had this thought but i'm still here and you know again i'm not i'm not a gun abolitionist by any means under no pretext <laughs> you know what i mean i'm i'm, I'm with it but i think like we've been sold this crock of shit that it's going to keep bad things from happening. And like and it hasn't. all of the evidence shows that it hasn't yeah. and it, and it doesn't. And if anything, even in non mass shooting situations, the amount of time, something that could have been a small thing turns into a fucking shooting gallery. Cause you've got a bunch of scared people who like are firing on adrenaline everybody thinks that they're going to be fucking dirty hairy but you're not you're scared shitless and you're not thinking about like what's happening and if if you even have the wherewithal to pull your weapon yeah. you know what i mean like you are likely operating in such a like frenzied state um so i just say all that to say it's not about like oh trying to restrict somebody's freedom it's just like the same people that love to say Facts don't care about your feelings. Ignore all the facts yep. when it comes to the realities of like, like what firearm ownership actually does for, regardless of like what the government should have a right to say we can or can't do with them. Like that, no, just having a shit ton of them around the data shows does not make you less likely to be a victim of a gun crime period. Like that's it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, again, back to the whole, the, wealth elite in this country own everything the people who manufacture the guns are paying our politicians to not make these laws that's that's what's up i mean that's the nra starts to make sense when you realize that it is a gun maker lobby and not a gun owner 
yeah. group. It's a it's, it's a, a gun manufacturer. Yeah, it, they serve the interests of gun manufacturers, not gun owners. Yeah. Um, then everything starts to make sense. Like you know, they used to do like gun safety shit and like all mm-hmm. like stuff like that. You know, for community for like, stuff. Recreate. Yeah, not anymore. Mm-mm. Um, you know what I want to talk about? I want to talk about when when they're talking about when when they go on and Justin says, "I'm the one who everyone just tells to get a fucking watch." I love that. <laughs> that yeah, they really, asked him, really made me laugh. "How long? How long till we go on?" And he's like, mm-hmm. "He goes, he goes, I don't know. I'm always the guy running around asking, <laughs> and everybody just tells me to get a fucking watch." <laughs> that shit fucking rocks. That's what it's like to be a Duke man. He's getting the real initiation. I love That's that. That's very cool. Well, I was thinking, I love that part. And two, I I did not know the story about how, you know, America, uh, you know, the best version 6.0 yeah. was was written. Me, yeah, me either. Before 9-11. Me either. And I watched this documentary before. <laughs> I forgot. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So the story, like he, you know, the 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 main focus was about the healthcare system in America. And it was written with for a John director. Q. <laughs> yeah, for John Q, who after 9-11 stopped returning Steve's calls, um, yep. according to Steve. So that really casts some light on that that I just was not aware of. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I uh um for one thing, when he when he laughs while he's singing it in the in the live footage, I thought that was great. He like chuckles at one point. Very, mm-hmm. very fun. Um, but yeah, dude, I completely forgot this song was for John Q. And uh, I, um, it, it's definitely because I watched this before I liked Jerusalem. Mm. I watched this before I'd come around on the record, and uh, then the, they didn't want to do it after 9 11. And I wrote, I hate it here. <laughs> yep. Because <laughs> worried about what other people would think. Yeah. I hate it here. That sucks. Yeah. Um, the only thing I wrote about that, I remember, I remember you performance is crushing so we can just yeah. keep moving on <laughs> so good so good um oh i did write for the america 6.0 uh like you know um visuals the uh live footage is like an allison chains music video <laughs> dude there were some really <laughs> interesting choices there Trippy. yeah it was like wow wow yeah like yeah, the visuals yeah. and the way the camera was moving and stuff is very uh disorienting it was um, quite a contrast to the to the music um next up is him in the bookstore yeah and, uh, he's talking about in cold blood and uh i wrote never seen in cold blood band rocks though <laughs> of course you did well they got their name from a truman capote book that uh you know we learn here was a big a big driver in you know steve's early opposition to the death penalty and he he tells a story from the book which this is this is true this is a, mm-hmm. a true story of you know the man who's about to be executed um you know has has learned and read that often people soil themselves after they're killed is worried about that like you know the undignified you yep. know like death like that and so asks for permission to go to the bathroom one more time before he's killed and uh at first you know the guards aren't going to allow it and it takes a priest intervening to allow them to go to the bathroom but it's just he talks steve you know talks about like not just inhumane but inhuman 
right? Because there is something too, just about that, like something there that like every human in the world can relate to, like he's afraid he's going to shit himself, man. And there's like something so small, but essentially human about that mm -hmm. in this moment where it's just like all of these other people who I'm just like sit there who are like, we're all fucking babies shitting themselves, coming into the world, not knowing anything. And all of these forces have conspired and what we've created in terms of a, of a society have conspired to put us here at this moment where they are responsible for killing this other man that they you know didn't know until a few moments before on behalf of supposedly us, like the state yeah. acting in the interest of citizens. And I thought that was really powerful. And it was a powerful introduction too. to, you know, we said this, this documentary is a little bit all over the place, but this is the start of a section that focuses on Steve's death penalty activism um, through a few different layers. Um, yeah, dude, as far as the, the want to take a shit before you get executed, like, the idea of you voicing that to someone, another human being, and them saying, so? Yeah. Like, really? I can't have one thing for me today? <laughs> it, it just reminds me, too, of how... You're you going to kill me. <laughs> I, I, people that work in prisons, right? Corrections officers and others, like, whether they were that way when they started the job or become that way in there some of the most cruel and inhumane things that you would just think are like, you know, it's just story after story coming out of like people suffering and dying and them just kind of like looking at them through the bars and being like, ah, you know what I mean? Um, when and, society tells you these people all deserve to be here, like, yeah, you, know, just, you can talk yourself into thinking they deserve a lot right. more than that. Right. So then, so in that context, it like doesn't surprise me that the executioner was just like, no, I don't care if you shit yourself, you know, like, um, it's, it's bleak, man. Um, there's, I think this next part, Steve plays over yonder, which we can talk about, you know, Jonathan's song, uh, when we talk about the live record, but they intersplice it with, you know, a, pictures of, of, of people killed by the state, um, which I thought was really powerful. It's a lot of the the visuals they splice into the songs is pretty powerful. Honestly, some of the songs that are just live footage, mm -hmm. you can you can text while that part's on. Totally, yeah. You're I watching mean, this documentary. That's part of the beauty of it, right? Where you can just kind of you could text, you could look at Twitter. That, well, no, don't look at Twitter. Actually, delete. Don't Twitter. look at yeah. <laughs> delete Twitter. <laughs> or or X as they call it now. No, I'm um, at that, but uh, did but yeah. I uh, I forgot he had another play. So this is what I wanted to talk about. And I've about, watched right? this documentary before. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe you were texting through the entire thing the first time. I was going through it. my knee surgery. Uh, uh, so I might have still been on. Uh, you were on I pills. I might have still been on my pills. I don't know yeah. if I was yet at that point. Well, fair enough. But he talks about meeting Sarah Sharp through the Tennessee Coalition to Abolish State Killing. Shout out. She seems cool. She seems cool as shit. That was the group. Um that first opened my eyes yep. to, to the death penalty um, through their work in Memphis. Um, and Steve and her wrote a play together uh, called Carla about Carla Faye Tucker, um, who was the first woman executed in Texas in like something over 
Yeah, hundred years. Hundred years. There is one of my fucking favorite scenes in this entire documentary, though. Is it the phone argument? The phone argument. It's so real, dude. How triggered were you, like watching that? I was like, oh my god, I've had so many of these fucking arguments before. This I feel like such an asshole. He's like, this is not what I wrote. He's like, I know what they're. I know what I wrote, and they're you know blah blah blah. This really animated argument while he's like in the back of a car on the phone. And then they show him later at rehearsal and he goes, hey, I rewrote the last scene. It wasn't working. Yeah. I was hoping it was them, but it was me. <laughs> yeah. Dude, that shit was so real. That shit was so real. I felt, so, I felt attacked. I know. But so there he is like first being so defensive about it. And then three days before the opening be like, yeah, I had to rewrite the last scene. It wasn't working. <laughs> so um, cool. Dude spot on like but yeah. props to steve also for like you can he's a true artist he defends his work but then is also able to come around and go yeah you're right that wasn't working i need to change it you know yeah. what i mean like dude i've been there before and also like i mean more than you know i've been there with my partner before but i've been there with my bandmates before too and i've defended so like so like i'm going to fucking die on the hill this is how yeah. the lyric should be i'm not changing this line and then, yeah, yeah. and then i'm forced to and i'm eventually like oh yeah it was actually way better call to do that instead like i think i would have been embarrassed about that later or uh man there was one there's one song that caleb like helped rework in its almost entirety and there were parts of it where i was like tooth and nail like i am not changing this part you've changed so much of it and i didn't fucking argue with you about it because you were right and the things that you wanted to change are better now because of you the idea you had was was good but this one thing like takes my intention completely out of it and he was just like well then can you try to say it another way and i was and i didn't you know what it was way better <laughs> that rules i love that man yeah, so it's fun. But I was like, when he's like, you made all these changes and, and you're right. They're, they work. They're good. They're good changes. I agree with them. And he's like, but this one, no. Yeah. Just, yeah, you're, yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. I, I was hoping it was them, but it was me. Um, um, I love that. The next thing's the uh, the banquet that he plays for um, honoring yeah. that, uh, that governor. And uh, I love that he played Billy Austin for them. That was yeah. Very cool. It was powerful. And the transition into the scene from The Wire. Yeah. And they were like, oh, we should probably talk about addiction now. And then it just jumps to the the, the character he played. Um, Waylon. Waylon in The Wire, which it took me back to like, you know, I remember watching it, not knowing that he was in it and being like, oh, fuck, that's Steve Earle. Like, I forgot you know, too. Yeah. Like got me so excited i'd also forgotten that they you know wrote his character as a baltimore townie so he says even here in balmer um <laughs> but like you know the, clearly able to access some lived experience there as he's like speaking at a narcotics anonymous meeting he's using um, the words yeah man so um but that yeah, goes into cool. we gotta talk about the wire at some point yeah we really do um it goes into, you know, similar to how like this last segment was, you know, kind of focused around Steve's death penalty abolition activism. This next part is is centered around, you know, his addiction and recovery. Um, and, you know, they contrast, they, they play some footage from to hell and back, 
Dude, the, the gun falling about. out of the waistband story. I told that story, I think, on one of these episodes. Yeah. Because I I heard him tell that story before, and I was like, I know that has to be what South Nashville Blues is about. Oh, totally. Like, I got $100, like $100 and a gun at everything like I needed to get me killed or whatever that line yep. mm-hmm. um, or however he says it, which was not what I just said. Um, <laughs> uh, I have to hear the music to know what he says. I just, I'm that kind of person. Um, but uh, fuck dude, that story. I love that. They, they fucking, he, t- they show him telling that story at practice. Yeah. And then they cut to him playing it in the to hell and back uh, yeah. doc. And that I was like, I felt so vindicated. Yes. But like yeah. I'd heard that story out of context and been like, that has to be what that song is about. Yep. It's that specific situation. It's exactly what it was about. And the very, line, very you know, cool. I don't know why they didn't just shoot me. I, I think they were just shocked. Yeah. Um, like it is true. It is wild that he lived through that. Yeah. Having, I mean, it, maybe now he off. wouldn't. Maybe now he wouldn't, but cops um, are a little bit more hypervigilant now than yeah, they were then. But the gun popped out, went off and Steve's thankfully still around to tell the story. Um, yeah, if you want to hear us talk about that whole documentary, there's a, an entire episode where we talk about the Hell and Back documentary. If you're new to this podcast, it is entitled "To Hell and Back," so that's how you'll be able to find it. <laughs> I don't remember cool. the episode number, but it's there. We cool. promise. Um, and dude, then... when it when it cuts to him in the car talking, are do you have any more, or can I go to this? Go to this because I wanted to talk about Conan O'Brien. <laughs> Do oh the Conan O'Brien shit rocks. Um, <laughs> but when he talks about uh, in when he's in the car and he's talking about addiction and whatnot, and he says you don't have to suffer for your art, but if you do suffer, it should be in your art. Yeah. Um, and then the live fast and die young, leave a good looking corpse. He's like, well, you might not die young. You might die slow and horrible, and that's what I was gonna do. Yeah, that's, that's hard. Real. That's, that's real hard. shit. Um, yeah. yeah, and then also the fucking live footage of him making me want to see him in a, in a standing room again man yeah man seeing him seated was I, fun but i want to be able to i want to see him with the dukes just fucking loud as hell man yeah that's, that's what i want i want to watch drunk moms dance it's yeah. so cool it's the best <laughs> the conan um, o'brien shit though it's what yeah, next thing you know he's in a room with conan they're talking about guitars they're talking about williamsburg Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just funny too, like they're talking about gentrification. It shows that like that 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 neighborhood in Brooklyn has become like a punchline for gentrification, you know, for a long time. But even in 2002, it was well underway. Yeah. Um, and Steve says, when the second sushi joint comes in, that's when you know your time is up. <laughs> you can't afford to live here. Anymore. You can't afford to live here anymore. <laughs> that shows I love cool. it. Um, and then they dude, and he talks to Conan about dogs. And... The Rhodesian Ridgeback, dude. That story was so fucking funny. That was awesome. Yeah. When Conan O'Brien, <laughs> when Conan O'Brien's like, uh, was like she she'd leave him in, in the five the five story walk and be like, here, read this New York. Here, read this. You're <laughs> you're designed to run sixty miles a day, but uh, and chase down a cheetah, but yeah. instead you're gonna pace back and forth in my apartment all day um, fucking horrible dude i, I do know. like you know i love dogs i think it's appalling that some people own certain dogs in new york dude i'll see we'll go to the park and i'll see fucking yeah i, I dude i agree unless you've got a job that allows you to come home and fucking run that motherfucker down to the park yeah. like once a fucking day 
yeah what the fuck are you doing I, we don't have a dog because i don't think we're home enough for it yeah we're certainly not um, so like be responsible be... with your pets people oh yeah <laughs> like the only way we'll get one is if when kieran gets old enough he wants one that and he's going to take care of it. Yeah. Be the primary responsibility. And of course I'll yes. help, but like, I'll want it to be his dog. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, totally agree, man. Um, dude, his dog is so fucking cute though. It's a really cute dog. Yeah. I I'm love glad Blue healers dude. I'm They're glad so that they good. featured his dog in the documentary and that the dog came on tour with them. Yeah. It was very cool. The yeah. fucking, the little, the little horn player thing <laughs> was so cute. And at the end of it, he says, see Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> that show was awesome. Dude. Steve's wild, oh, man. He'll remind fucked. you every once in a while. Um, yeah. I, I, my notes kind of take a, a bit of a turn here, and I don't remember what scenes are attached to. I really appreciated him talking about Bill Monroe. Um, oh yeah, I don't know if, if if that's a jump ahead or if there's anything before that. Um, put in. There's one thing uh, I can't remember what what this one pertains to, but the, I wrote the freeze frames, the live stuff is so dated it rocks. <laughs> And it, it's what's funny too is like they, there's no cohesive theme to the production. Every, Every live scene or is live different. footage is different. It's yeah. edited differently. It's like it was some kid's like project in high school, and he was like, "Check this out." Yeah, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's very amazing. like freshman project uh, energy going. Um, but uh, the thing he does um, when he plays the. Uh, when he plays Rex's blues, he mm-hmm. talks about tracing his influence from the Beatles um, all the way to towns and talks about how he couldn't get an electric guitar. So he had to find things that he could emulate. Yep. And then eventually he landed on somebody closer to him, more to of a contemporary in his towns. Right. And that's what I wrote. You know, he said, and from then on out, I was more influenced by music that people made by people I knew dude, I wrote, that's punk and hardcore. Yep. Right there. Like getting mm-hmm. to that moment where like, oh, the majority of my influences now come from people that I know that I have the opportunity to like be friends with, build relationships with. Those are those are who inspire me. And it's just, that is another of the endless parallels I see between punk and hardcore and Steve's approach. Um, yeah. No, is, for sure. Yeah. I mean, some of my favorite songs I've been a part of have been influenced by people yeah. currently going that I was like, damn, I that inspires me to the new magnitude record. Dude, to bring 100%. it back to what you were talking about at the beginning, made me inspired to write for a while. I've spent like a few days writing a lot Fuck because yeah. of hearing that record and just having a feeling like I wanted to create. Um, but uh yeah, I think I skipped us ahead now because I realized I don't think I had anything about the um, when he plays the mountain and is talking about well, Bill Monroe spliced in. What, what he says about Bill Monroe that I appreciate it too is he says like he's playing describing bluegrass is actually this very sophisticated form of music, but that is like because it's associated with like poverty, mm-hmm. you know, is is considered like low class. So he said when Bill Monroe would talk about it. Uh, Steve described it as he was overcompensating for all the Rube stuff on the Grand Ole Opry because like when he used to be on the Grand Ole Opry, you had to do these like yeehaw kind of like, bits, you know what I mean? And so Bill Monroe, like later on as becoming as like the godfather of of bluegrass, you know what I mean? Is is like elevating it more as like, this is a distinctive 
cultural yeah. art form um, that deserves respect. It's not just for like, you know, shits and giggles on a Saturday night in Nashville, you know? So um, mm-hmm. I, I liked that point, but yeah, what you said to just the, the, the bit around like, who knows how different things could have been like Steve's dad just only let him have an acoustic. So yep. he found who he could emulate there. And like the rest is history. Right. I, I fucking love that. Yeah, um, no, very fucking cool. We're coming close to the end. Um, th- th- the scene where he's he's riding in the passenger seat in the car. Listening to his own music. Yeah, one, listening to his own music. <laughs> Two, who, who's driving? Like, I don't know. Is it I, Justin? Because no. he's really talking shit to him. W- the way he was talking, I was like, this is how he's talking to his kid. This has to be Justin. Yeah. But then they show the profile of the driver and it's a thicker dude. Like I'm curious it's, it's not a tall, skinny dude. I did not immediately recognize you just see like, you know, the back quarter of his profile from the footage from the back seat. But it's I d- just really did appreciate like two two lines there. Like, um, you know, he's basically telling this dude, stop driving like an asshole, like speeding and stuff. And he he goes, sounds like my dad. It's awesome. I know. <laughs> I'm an, he goes, I'm an ex-con and a death penalty abolitionist. And the fraternal order of police is based in Nashville. Like basically like, yeah. I don't want. They're not going to be stoked. No, they're not going to be stoked. And then a line that I really have appreciated, just in my life and and have lived by, even though it's not like I've ever had drugs or anything like that in my car. But like, if you're going to be an outlaw, don't drive like a fucking idiot and give them a reason to go looking in your car. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, don't if like if you've got. (laughs) I think this is could be true for activists. Anybody who like has an interest in not having the state snooping around. Drive carefully. Drive carefully. Don't be an asshole and give them a reason to pull you over and try to get into your shit, you know? So wise words. <laughs> um, yo, the next, uh, the next thing is um, the Copperhead road and that he plays that really long uh, mandolin. Yeah. Part beforehand. Ooh. I love just proving to you. Now I know how to play this motherfucker. I, I may know. have not known how to play this when I wrote this fucking song, but now I'm going to fucking play that shit. Yeah. And we're, we're contrasting it with, was it at the, on the, the Bluebird Cafe record where they kind of, he skips the intro. Yeah. Right. And we were just like, you can't do that on this song. Mm-hmm. That proved, this is a song that like not only needs the whole intro, but that you extended. You can fuck around before, man. That rocks. Fuck, that extended mandolin buildup ruled it like dude also when the i wrote when the drums started kicking in i thought they were about to start playing shipping up to boston <laughs> <laughs> it's got a little bit of that feel it for did. sure oh man i think i think anytime you uh you got uh some mandolin and some fiddle going and uh in in drums start kicking in i start i just hear shipping up to boston <laughs> you know it's simultaneously corny and also like hard as hell so um, oh, I, I, another, I wrote in other news, uh, I started listening to Street Dogs. Pretty good. Dude, Street it's Dogs is pretty cool. good. It's fucking cool. <laughs> I saw Street Dogs many years ago and really liked it. I would love to see Street Dogs right now. Yeah. I'm I'm a fan. It's cool. I think I, I, think I wore a scally cap to that show. That's how like, into That's it That's how I knew it you were? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, for yeah. You. I, shit, uh, I'm going to try to find a shirt. That's my, yeah. new, my, new, my new hunt right now is to find a... An old, an old, old street dog shirts, so like a, a 15 years old one. They were like, yeah, the, um, yeah, I guess this was, 
Okay, it says the band disbanded in 20... It had to be around like the like 2009, 2010. I feel like they played New York a few times and I, I got to talk to Mike McColgan once after one of the shows. He was fucking cool as shit. Dude, um, the lyrics are amazing. Yeah. They're, they're me. They're for me. It's The band is for me. Yeah. Other over- than the drinking, I'm, I'm, I'm in for all of it. I think they're overlooked by a lot of people in like in hardcore, but I think people would dig them if they gave them a listen. Yeah, for sure. Especially all these, you know, fucking lefty freaks in hardcore. Yeah. And fuck. Yeah. Let the freak flag fly. But, you know, I think sometimes people hear a name like street dogs and they just don't think anything about it, yeah, but you, you got to, you got to dig a little under the surface. Um, I didn't. One of my buddies was, was like, was pushing. He's like, he's like, yo, because he was like, uh, I had mentioned something like, I've never really given Dropkick Murphys a chance. I just know the songs that play in movies. Yeah. And they were like, well, you got to listen to the first record. And then you should listen to Street Dogs if you like that, because he left the band after that. And I was like, oh, I had no idea. I didn't even know about this band. And then two years later, I got around to actually checking it out. And I uh, should have listened to it two years ago. <laughs> Hell yeah. Whatever, well, listen to it now. And it's fun. Ashton loves it, too. Yeah, man. It's good shit. Like, yeah, it's I- very cool. Street Dogs is cool. Fuck yeah. Um, um, and then now we get back to talking about Israel. <laughs> yeah, we're going to close with closing with Jerusalem as a. it's like. Well, not really closing. Not really there's, closing. There's a but, little bit after this, but yeah, uh, but we're intent- back to talking about this, dude. It's I love I love how he talks about it. I think it's very cool how plainly and clearly and uncomplicated. Like the Abrahamic religions thing he has to say is very cool. And then when he says, if we can solve the problems there, then we can probably solve, you know, pretty much anything else. Yeah, it's intended to be a hopeful message. And I think I appreciate that for what it is. It just, I think in this very moment, it's, I'm just having a hard time with it. But like, that's part of the beauty of state. Like it, it seemed far-fetched then. Yep. Um, And, but he's, he's completely right about all of it you know did you uh did you see his statement he made on it on instagram no it's kind of mealy mouth it's pretty much like i've got friends who are palestinians i've got friends who are israeli and he like kind of uh he pumps a guy who he went over and made like a documentary in a which i don't think i don't know if the documentary has ever come out um but he made a documentary like making a record with some palestinian and israeli artists in Mm. jerusalem and uh, I guess there's a documentary about them making this record together. And this artist who he he is friends with over there. Um, and uh, it's I mean, I say it's mealy mouth. It's more or less like, you know, like, you know, the death of anybody like it does. It doesn't he doesn't, you know, come out straight up being like, you know, it's not like free Palestine or anything like that. Sure. But it's very much like, you know, like celebrating the death and like beating the drums for more death is like not a cool thing or whatever. It's like a two page notes fucking statement or whatever um but i got scared when i i was chilling at home and my buddy kieran who i don't know if he still listens to our podcast but he's the one who gave me the book that i use for the, for the podcast but he texted me he's like did you see steve earl's uh, statement on gaza he's like pretty disappointing and i read it and i was like you know what when he, him saying it was disappointing i thought i was going to be like upset right but more or less i just felt nothing from it yeah um which is better <laughs> sure better i was like i was like i mean he may more, more or less like in two pages said as little as he possibly could to fill up two pages yeah but when i first searched to find out what he said 
I found a, something that I thought was his statement just reposted somewhere by the sun because it was like Steve Earle and then it was like something about like liberals must not be very liberal anymore like kind of defending like like defending Israel by like talking about like how like you know liberals you know talk about like you know whatever and is like the 1400 dead like you know like they're supporting blah 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 and I was like reading it and I was like oh my god did Steve Earle say this and I was like oh no this is someone's response to Steve Earle not being bloodthirsty unreal and yeah. I was like his even his little kind of mealy mouth like response that doesn't take any real side mm-hmm. not enough not enough no you you must if you are not demanding dead palestinian dead babies, children yeah then you must be a terrorist right yeah, or you, crazy, you must dude. you must think it's good that hamas killed people if you if you don't think the response should be to murder children in gaza um that is yeah that, that that's that's the reactionary attitude um it's just crazy man i mean at the end of the day like where i'm where i'm at on it always is going to be they're a right-wing reactionary theocracy i'm going to be against it <laughs> yeah even if they were right. a left-wing theocracy I'm going to be against it. The theocracy part's the problem. And the thing that I was talking to one of my coworkers today about it, and I was like, the thing that pisses me off the most is these people try to say that like Hamas and all these, all these Islamist groups say like Israel should not exist. And that's, and some of them do say that. Mm -hmm. And that is fucked up. But I don't think any theocratic state should exist. I mean, brother, I don't think I the don't United think... States of America should exist. So that, you know, like... are you are you saying we are one? Because I think I would say we are one. Well, I think it's that you look at our Supreme Court and what well... is what decisions are being made. We're obviously being religiously dictated to. So, like, I think Iran's just as fucked up as Israel. Yeah, I mean, can I'm with be, you. On... Can I can I can I can I can that be OK? I mean, obviously, I think so. But like, to me, too, it's not even coming at it from like a, a theocratic element, which I think you're spot on, too. But like, I, I'd make the point, too, about like, you know, Israel as a settler colonial state to the the people on the left. And this is a very tiny minority of people that have been, you know, if you talk to an Israel supporter, they'll act like all of us are cheerleading Hamas, which is just a lie. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but who, you know, had some kind of attitude like, hey, if you're in Israel, you kind of have it coming. I was like, if you're an American, then kind of the same thing is true, right? Yes. Um, because we are also a settler colonial state. We're just older. So yeah. we're we're a few we're gener- crusaders. Right. We're we're several generations removed from the blood that was shed for us to sit on the land that we sit on today. But I was just fucking born here the same way that some random dude in Israel was just born there. Right. Yeah. And so they don't like, deserve to be killed. But at exactly. the same time, I would hope they're mad. Exactly. I would hope they're as mad as I am. <laughs> like that. That's what I'm talking about. Right. Like, so like there it is to, to, to say that, you know, anybody's got it coming just because of where they happen to be born or live is completely fucked up. But like the, Again, it's about the like, I go back to Steve's quote earlier in this, like 
I'm in pain and somebody has to pay and I don't care if it's the wrong person is, you know, very much this. And, and, you know, I've heard multiple people, especially in the media, making the point around like, you know, well, considering how small, you know, the population of Israel is, you know, the amount of people who are killed, like that's the equivalent to, you know, whatever, 50,000 Americans or whatever. You want to play that game? They've killed 1.2 million Gazans then, if, yeah. if we're playing that game of proportionality. Um, and, I, and I think I, I saw a, an amazing Jewish activist, one of the people who was arrested um, here in New York over the weekend for for protesting for Gaza, gave a quote. I'm going to butcher it, but it was basically like, it really comes down to when we say never again, did we mean never again just for Jews? Yeah. Or never again for anyone. And he was like, I believe never again for anyone. And yeah, I listened I listened yeah. to an interview with a girl who was talking about like encouraging Jews to read up on other genocides, mm-hmm. not just the one that happened to them. Like to read up on the Armenian genocide, to read up on like the the Darfur genocides. The belt the Belgian Congo, like, yes, know, like, yeah. dude, absolutely horrific what they did to them. Like, ah, uh, man, I, ugh. it's, it's gross, but yeah, I, uh, to, to come back around to what Steve's feelings on this, I think the more important thing than the, the, you know, everything's bad message he initially said was the next thing he posted, I think, on his Instagram was, footage of his friend playing at one of the checkpoints oh wow in in the west bank playing music in like a like a like a warehouse sort of thing like a where you know all these palestinians have to pass through to go from one place to the other and there's this little girl dancing hmm. to him playing and she's just by herself just dancing in front of this dude playing it's like it seems like almost nobody's paying attention to the music being played Except for this little girl who's like having a blast. Oh, I got to check this out. Pretty special. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a pretty perfect special. note. That's a perfect note to end on, man. Yeah. Let's move on to the Ashes to Ashes uh, finale. And um, the fact that the moving words on the screen. <laughs> Again, like we said, every live performance <laughs> has a different production. It's so, so silly. They decided to make this one a lyric video, I guess. And <laughs> it is very inconsistent. And it's the second half of the Ashes to Ashes performance yeah. that the opening happens with and then fades out. And then we're going to resume it now. But it's not to close it because there's more yeah. after this. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I um, I did. I did like. um the protest footage that was cut in that that at the end uh, that i thought during, was a st- during justin's song i thought that was cool yeah. i thought closing with justin's song with protest footage was a very strong way to close one just because it frankly it captured the, the time the feeling of the time yep. but there was also a little bit of a symbolic torch passing there yeah um, by having justin kind of be the lead as they closed out which i yeah. really loved I'm excited to talk about that song like more. And I'm really excited to talk about like the music from the doc in particular. Like, yeah, but, uh, but yeah. Um, the, also the live cuts for that last song, like they look like they're having so much fun. 
They really do, man. That you've really like, there's so many awesome moments of them like looking at each other and smiling and like just rocking out and just having a great time where some of the performances kind of have this seriousness or this sadness or somberness to them. Mm. And the this one is just fun. This is yeah, fun. Man. And it's a song of hope. It's a song of yeah, it's really beautiful. I'm I'm excited to listen more to it because this is the first time I've ever really heard this song. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Because I looked and there's it's not recorded any other place. It's so I was gonna ask you that. It's not you haven't found it's not, it. It's else. not on yeah. it's not on Justin's on any of his records. Yeah. It's never been recorded any other place than this. Okay, this good to know record. I was wondering if it just wasn't on any of his records that I'm familiar with, but nope. I didn't miss anything. I looked, I looked okay. it up and it it only shows up here. Um, but yeah, no, it's very cool. And yo, for anybody who uh like is older and lived through this Iraq war buildup time and anybody who's younger who didn't live through it man it was fucking crazy yeah it was a crazy time because I can remember like how hard the war drums were being beaten yeah to convince us to do this thing and I can remember going and seeing that fucking Matt Damon movie later about mm. how they just couldn't find the weapons nope <laughs> and and having to like i remember not really having any feeling either otherwise on it because i didn't I, I didn't get i still didn't understand why we were going to war with iraq except for the fact that i kind of had a little bit of an understanding of gulf of the gulf war right and desert storm so like part of me was always like thinking like well is this just because like we didn't do a good enough job the first time. Right. Cause like these weren't the people that did, did 9-11. The, the, the plane so, thing. Right. I remember even having the thing where I was like, isn't like what this seems like tenuous at best that Afghanistan is even who we should be going to war right. with. These, over. these were mostly Saudis who yeah. you're telling me are our allies. Right. Yeah. So, so I'm like very, I was very confused. It was a very confusing yeah. time. Uh, in America, but um, yeah, I, I think anybody who is older, who is, you know, fooled or, you know, confused like I was as a kid or anybody who's younger who didn't have any experience. Dude, one thing I highly recommend, if you're listening to this podcast, you obviously will listen to podcasts. The Blowback Podcast Season 1 is all about the Iraq War mm. and it will make you fucking cry. Well, a million Iraqis, a million men. I mean, we've got we've got listeners who not just lived through it, but who were sent over there. Um, That's fucking awful, dude. You know, like and I think, you know, me having the privilege of being here, but having close friends of mine that, you know, went and have never been the same since coming back. And then a couple of kids that I went to high school with who, you know, like we're I graduated the year before 9-11 who enlisted because no no i'm talking about the year before who had enlisted to like fuck what else am i going to do oh and maybe we're going to some money yeah because at the -hmm. the time in 2000 it seemed like oh well you know i don't got anything else going on yeah Yeah. maybe they'll give me i'll learn some shit they'll give me some money for college i can do that and then that's not how it panned out um and two of those kids i knew um didn't come back so you know, and again, that's not to, that's just mentioning the toll 
on the side of the aggressors, which is us. Um, yeah. Not not the the toll of like it it, it is hard for us to to fathom the amount of destruction and the amount of people that literally everyone they knew was killed. Um, uh, yeah, and dude, it's it's real fucked too. Like that 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 podcast. One of the things that astounded me was how little I knew about the the Iran Iraq War. And they go into that and in pretty extensive mm. all the role that we played in it, selling weapons to both sides. And yep, fucking nuts, dude. We sold dude. chemical weapons to one side, and then we sold the materiel to deal with the chemical weapons to the other. Jesus Christ! Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's that's so nuts, <laughs> dude. That is the American project in a in a fucking yep. nutshell, man. Um. I'm gonna listen to that. I, I have. I haven't. Dude, it's um, uh, it opens with uh, H. John Benjamin does a an intro for the first episode. It's pretty funny, dude. I mean, there's some. This was this period of time is when I became who I am as like a an activist. Uh, you know, and fucking angry. Though I solidified from you know being an angry punk rocker as a phase to it definitely being who I would be for the rest of my <laughs> life. <laughs> um, Oops. <laughs> oop, yeah. Um, so thanks. Thanks W. Thanks Donald Rumsfeld. Um, honestly, the one other thing I was talking to somebody, dude, they Philly talk about, about Donald Rumsfeld so much. Yeah. He sounds like such a fucking cocksucker, dude. You, you, the, you know, another album speaking about hardcore that I think perfectly encapsulates this time is, um, is the suicide files twilight. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I think the, you know, skull and bones, skull and bones, Ashcroft, um, like they encapsulate so much of that time period. Um, and it, and I, for me, it's interesting because there's like the combination of the, the, of the, the political songs on that record that capture mm -hmm. that spirit of the time, but also just some of the more like social shit that Dave Weinberg was so good at writing. He's very well. smart. Yeah. He's somebody um, I would love to meet. Dude. Um, and you know he's an educator as well. Yeah. Um, so, I've we've got. Mutuals. The last time I saw him, he had some of his students come up and do the Fresh Prince of Bel Air intro on stage at This Is Hardcore. He had Dude. his a couple of his students wrapped the the Fresh Prince of Bel Air intro on stage, and then so, the Suicide File kicked in. So fucking. Sick. It was awesome. They kicked right. I think they kicked right into two thousand three. It was very badass. Dude, fuck yeah, that rules. Yeah. Well. Um, in the spirit of the suicide file, fuck Fox News. Yep. And um, thanks for going on this journey with us. As always, more to come on on Just an American Boy, the record. Anything else see to say, guys, Tyler? No. See you guys then. All right. Take care of each other. Peace.